Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutional government. I'm Adam White. Here at AEI, my own work is part of a department dedicated to social, cultural, and constitutional studies. I've always liked the way that this frames the matter of constitutional law. That is, not just the beginning of conversations of legality or illegality, but as the fruit of more fundamental questions about our society and our culture. In an era of seemingly more and more polarized life, that's politically, socially, culturally, and even constitutionally, these questions seem ever more challenging and ever more urgent. And here to help us think about these things is my friend Ryan Anderson. This year, Ryan became president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in Washington, D.C. He's also the founding editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. He's written a number of books, authored books, co-authored books. Two of his books are Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and most recently, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that book and some controversy surrounding it in a bit. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, we're recording this on April 22nd. Just last week, Ryan, you were down at the University of Dallas at a conference on America, liberalism, and Catholicism. You you posted a copy of your remarks to public discourse, right? We'll talk about that a little bit, but first, let's just start with the the title of the conference, America, Liberalism, and Catholicism. The word liberalism is, is more and more the subject of debate. Why don't you describe what you mean by liberalism? Sure. So before I do that, since you mentioned it's April 22nd, I have to wish my mom a happy birthday. Today's her 79th birthday. I doubt she will ever hear this podcast. She doesn't really do podcasts. She doesn't have a podcast app or anything like that. But 79 and going strong, we're going to have her over for dinner tonight. So happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday, Uh, Ryan's mom. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And then to your question, part of what the conference was about at UD and part of what I tried doing in my kind of like opening remarks to kind of set the table is say that liberalism is itself a term that is being contested. Like, what do we mean by liberalism? And it doesn't mean, you know, every last aspect of John Locke's theories or J.S. Mill's theories or, you know, John Rawls's theories. And, you know, there, there are differences between those three. There are also certain commonalities and, and kind of, you know, an overlapping consensus, perhaps you could say for the three of them. You know, is that what we mean by liberalism? Do we mean a certain anthropological view of the human person? Right, where we're a state of nature, an unencumbered self that you know only has contractual relationships with others. So there's a whole anthropology that could come along. But do we mean certain political arrangements? You know, things like the separation of church and state, free exercise of religion, private property rights, free exchange, market economies, et cetera, et cetera. Many of which predated liberal theorists, right? So some of these institutions, you someone like Patrick Danino point out that, you know, the aspects of this that he actually likes come out of, you know, late medieval theory and, and not so much theory, but practice, right? I mean, like these are, you know, lived arrangements. And so, so there's a question of like, what do we mean by liberalism? Are we talking about some of the theories? And if so, which theoretician are we talking about? Are we talking about certain constitutional or political arrangements? And if so, you know, which ones? And then there's another question here is that, are there certain not logical necessities and not, you know, kind of like Hegelian, you know, once you, you know, you set things in motion, this was the inevitable conclusion. But, and, and also on the flip side of this would be not, you know, it's 
utterly happenstance that it ended out this way. You know, it could have ended up this way, could have ended up that way. It just so happens that it ended up this way. So neither like a strict determinism nor a, you know, they're utterly unrelated, but are there certain tendencies that liberal institutions embody and encourage, right? And so I, I think the most sophisticated version of the argument would be, look, you don't necessarily have to embrace Lockean anthropology, but if you live in a country that has institutions that are, you know, something of a Lockean sort, they might cultivate and have certain tendencies that go in a certain direction. And so it's not surprising when you see like late liberalism, you know, arriving in a certain direction that might even look like it's contrary to, you know, some of the explicit theories of liberal theoreticians, right? And the people point out now, they're like, wait, 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 that's not liberalism, that's progressivism. And then other people say, well, no, that's actually the kind of like outgrowth of the inherent dynamisms, tendencies of liberalism. All of which is just to say is that, you know, I don't have particularly strong conclusions on these questions. I think these are like just endlessly interesting, fascinating questions to be asking. And they're vitally important because how you answer these questions is going to, you know, in significant ways, determine how you think about our present historical moment and therefore how we should respond to it. Yeah. Right? If, you, if, if you think that some of the, you know, tendencies of the founding are built into it, then a quote, return to the founders isn't going to be the solution for what ails us. If you think that, you know, modern progressivism has nothing to do with the founding, then you might think a return to the founders is the solution if you're, you know, concerned about modern progressivism. And then the last thing to say for Catholics, like Catholics have been discussing this stuff since day one, right? I mean, since they got off the boat on like American shores, they've been wrestling with, you know, what's our status here? You know, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, you know, originally set up as a safe harbor for Catholics. And that didn't last long. And so there's always been an uneasy feeling of Catholics in America. And you even see this in, you know, magisterial teaching. Some of the things that Pope Leo has said about Catholicism and liberalism look different than things that John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis have said, you know, when they've made visits to America. And then the question is, like, how do you understand that? Is it a development of doctrine? Is it a different emphasis based upon changing historical circumstances, yada, 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 right? I mean, like that's, that's what the conference was all about. You know, I encourage, you know, our listeners, all of the videos are up on YouTube or, or they should be by the end of today. I don't know when this will post. So by the time our people are listening to this, like all the videos will be up on YouTube. And I'll just mention, you know, opening panel was between, or not between, it was with Patrick Deneen and Chris Wolf on kind of the nature of the American regime. The second panel was with Gladden Pappin and Joe Capizzi on kind of like Catholic teaching with respect to liberalism. And, you know, what do we mean by liberalism when the Catholic Church is speaking about it? Theological liberalism is different than political liberalism, different than political structures, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last panel was with Chad Pecknold and Dan Burns on the nature of the political common good and what we should do now. There was a keynote lecture from Ross Douthat and closing remarks from Rob Coons. So really, like all eight of these scholars are just top notch. You know, I consider all eight of them friends. I'm, I'm not sure if they, they reciprocate that or not, but, you know, all eight of them, I think, are just like top of their game, wonderful people. And, you know, I encourage, you know, listeners to, to you know, dig it up on YouTube and check it out. It's impossible to do justice to the depth of those subjects, even in a, a conference, let alone a podcast. I'd encourage listeners to, to at least read the piece that you wrote. Again, it's on public discourse and it's titled. America, liberalism, and Catholicism, 
for the way that, that you, Ryan, very briefly unpack some of the competing approaches to liberalism that's been offered by popes over the years. You begin with Pope Gregory the Sixteenth in 1832 saying, quote, that liberty of conscience, or saying that the claim that liberty of conscience must be maintained for everyone is an absurd and erroneous proposition. And then you move forward in the, into more current times and you quote John Henry Newman, Pope Benedict, for what seems that you point out, it's, it's hard to know how directly in conflict they are with one another, because they might be just talking about using the same words to describe different concepts, but sort of offering a much more amenable view of liberty of conscience. I have to admit, as an American and also a Catholic, my sort of understanding and still this understanding just in, in sort of layman's terms is that the American version of liberalism has been a great blessing to the Catholic Church, especially in America, where we've we've had a, a flourishing church and the ability to engage publicly. It's ebbed and flowed over time. So I've been a little bit bewildered, is probably putting it too strong, but fascinated by by the criticism coming from Catholic friends, including Adrian Vermeule, who I've known for quite a while, pushing back against, or really criticizing full-throatedly liberalism. That's a much longer podcast, but I just want to put my own thoughts out there. There's a few lines in your, your article jumped out at me, and we're going to return to them throughout our conversation. But after you get through sort of the summarize, just offering some, some perspectives from a few past popes, you ask, quote, where does that leave us in America? Does America exhibit the sort of healthy secularity that Popes Benedict and Francis propose, or the unhealthy secularism that they condemn? What did you mean by that? What's the healthy secularity versus the, the unhealthy secularism? Sure. So what Pope Benedict has pointed out, and he's quoting the Second Vatican Council, saying that you know there is a certain autonomy, and I say certain autonomy intentionally because I'm, I want to then get to later to say what it's not a certain autonomy, but a certain autonomy for like the political realm and the ecclesial realm, that the jurisdictions, the natures, those who have authority, they're distinct, right? And so the sacrament of holy orders, ordination, the charism that comes with that is for leading the spiritual community, leading the church. That's the jurisdiction. And it's different than elected office in our political system and the political authority that comes with, you know, running a city, a state or, or a nation. And there's a certain autonomy between those two institutions, the church and the state, their jurisdictions, their distinct common good, the political common good, and then kind of the the ultimate common good, the spiritual common good, and therefore the jurisdiction, the nature, the authority, a certain amount of autonomy. But what Benedict also wants to point out is that the temporal authority, the political authority, isn't autonomous from God, right? So while there's a certain autonomy vis-a-vis structural church in a certain way, there's not an autonomy vis-a-vis the creator, vis-a-vis the created order, vis-a-vis the natural law, vis-a-vis the moral law, right? And, and that's what Benedict wants to point out with you know, some late modernity political concepts where it seems like autonomy is taken, you know, in the very literal sense of this is autonomos, right? Self-legislating, you know, a Kantian understanding. And he utterly rejects that, right? The political community is not autonomous from God, from creation, from natural law, from the moral order. And, you know, and this is straight out of Martin Luther King Jr. as well, right? I mean, it's central to the civil rights movement. So it's not foreign to the American political tradition. 
on a certain reading of the founding, it's not foreign to the founders. Right? And the readings of the founding are, are contested. But, you know, there's a certain reading of the founding. And this gets, you know, which John Locke do you read? Is it kind of the Leo Straussian read of Locke, where Locke is more or less just dressed up Hobbes? You know, or is it the Jeremy Waldron read of Locke, where Locke's a Christian? He's a more modern Christian, but like Lockean political thought is Christian rather than Habesian, right? Those are the debates there. There's also now a question, and I think this is something that some of the integralists have raised of, you know, what's the relationship of, you know, how autonomous, right? That certain autonomy between church and state, how autonomous, how independent should it be, right? How should the church today exercise what's known as like the indirect spiritual power over temporal affairs? And, you know, that was one of the topics that Joe and Gladden discussed in their panel. I think that historically, America was probably the healthy secularity that Benedict and Francis have described, and it's probably moving more into the unhealthy secularism, which they have decried, right? And, and I think you can just see this with the role that you know, objective moral truths play in our political culture. I mean, the way that you know, certain moral truths are put in scare quotes. I, I've had one law professor put the word truth in scare quotes when quoting me, and it's you know, this shouldn't be a contested issue. And the last thing I'll say is that we should also think about what the, the role of the political community is in promoting the religious life of the citizens, right? If part of the purpose of the state is to promote human flourishing, the common good, the protection both of liberties and rights and, you know, the full flourishing of citizens, and I think it's a both and, not an either or situation, you then have to ask yourself, all right, well, how does the state promote the religious life of its citizens in a pluralistic society like ours, right? And I think that's where you could see some of the the change in the application of principles from someone like Pope Leo to someone like Pope Francis. And you know, Leo says, you know, the church in America has been great, you know, operating with freedom, but it would be even better if it had, you know, certain privileges of law and patronage of state. And then Pope Francis says, you know, a couple of years ago that confessional states always end badly. And I think both of those are contingent judgments, right? I I don't think they always necessarily end badly. I don't think the Catholic Church would do even better if it necessarily, if it had patronage of law and certain legal privileges, that those are always going to be contingent historical judgments that need to be made. And in some cases, the answer might be yes, some cases, the answer might be no. But the kind of like underlying principles that the state should do what it can effectively to promote true religion, and the religious lives of her citizens. So, of course, this is an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism, not an AEI podcast on American Christianity or Catholicism. Your talk at Dallas, though, it, it does, when it begins with the discussion of where the Catholic Church has been on these issues, it turns very quickly to what this means for American legal institutions. And, and you, you point out that this is a mix of questions. I mean, there is, these are questions of principle, right? And as we judge our legal and political institutions. But then you, you, you take a turn towards prudence. Here's another quote, quote, and then there's a prudential question of what faithful Catholics in America should do today. How you evaluate the various ideas and the various institutions will influence how you evaluate today's threats to human dignity and human flourishing, and thus what practical steps faithful Catholics need to take. And so that's the end of the quote, the, the point being that even after we begin with our principal judgments about what is our best view of, of the good, sort of in the abstract, there is this basic question 
and as a prudential one, of how people today ought to engage the politics, law, and communal life with an eye to, to prudence on what can reasonably done to help improve things, knowing that we live in, in an imperfect world and, and there are practical limits on what can be done. How do you see the prudential questions? Yeah, let, let me give two examples of that because you know both came up at the conference. And since I was moderating, you know, I was more or less trying to get the panelists to, to, to share their views and I wasn't giving too much of my own. But you know, one of the things that came up and it was an exchange between Gladden and Joe Capizzi was, you know, look at the coronavirus restrictions on freedom of worship, not just, you know, free exercise religion robustly understood, but even narrowly understood as the freedom of worship. The state has not done a good job here. And, you know, one of the questions was that, look, you know, one of the one of the people serving inside of the administration, this is back during Trump years that, you know, a way in which he was able to persuade his colleagues to enlarge the scope of free exercise of religion was by comparing religious activities to comparable, and I'm putting this in scare quotes for you know people only listening, secular activities. And the point here is that they're not truly comparable because like one is a supernatural activity. Right? From a Catholic perspective, when we attend mass, there's really no comparable secular activity. But what this individual done was compared it, look, we're allowing people to gather in other places at this size. We're allowing people to go to you know these sorts of things, do other you know, this is no more risky than, you know, these sorts of like speaking activities or these sorts of large gatherings, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so my thought about the prudential side is that, look, let the lawyers and the policymakers make the sorts of arguments that are going to be persuasive in those venues. And then the flip side of the question was, well, isn't there a risk, though, if that's our only argument? And I think that's true. So I I would want to see the bishops and, you know, also some lay Catholics saying, oh, and by the way, like we are a divinely established institution that has like Christ as our founder. And, you know, the control that Caesar has over us is limited, right? And like we can assert our freedom, our divine rights, not just our kind of constitutional rights, but our divine rights to be able to to worship, to celebrate the sacraments, et cetera, et cetera. So so I think part of the prudential question is going to be who are we talking about? Who's the agent? And it might be that, you know, a lawyer litigating a religious freedom case about COVID restrictions in a court of law under First Amendment jurisprudence has to make one set of arguments. And it may be that, you know, lay faithful Catholics and Catholic bishops should, in addition, be making a second set of arguments about, you know, the nature of the church and the freedom of the church as a theological concept and not just a constitutional concept, right? We we might need both of those things. And then the other example that came up was there had been a recent wave of pieces of legislation dealing with transgender issues. And, you know, one of the questions was like, you know, what what do we do vis-a-vis, you know, children with gender dysphoria and how should we think about the law on this? And, you know, one way of approaching this is to make a kind of like liberal anthropological argument where, you know, human beings are utility maximizing self-directed autonomous choosers and children aren't there yet. And therefore we shouldn't do puberty blocking drugs or cross-sex hormones or surgery until they reach 18. And then, you know, in our legal system, they are, you know, fully formed adult utility maximizing autonomous choosers, right? And so that's one way of making an argument. And that might be persuasive, you know, given who your audience is and what the legal context and framework is. But to my mind, like that should that argument should only be made at the service of 
a different argument, a more substantive, you know, if that's a procedural argument, right? A more substantive argument is about what's actually the nature of the human person, the real nature of the human person, because we're not autonomous, utility maximizing free choosers. And why might some transition procedures actually not be in the best interest of actual human dignity and human flourishing, right? And if you only make the kind of like free choice argument, you might actually be setting yourself up for a long-term defeat, right? So there might be a short-term victory, but a long-term defeat, because the very premise of that argument, we are just autonomous choosers, would suggest that, oh, then once you reach the age of 18, you know, we should be free to autonomously choose our gender identity. And then the apparatus of the state should now protect my dignity as a woman, and therefore you know, force people to pay for the procedures, to perform the procedures, and to affirm my identity in a variety of ways, right? So that's where I think like the prudential question really, really matters, because how we even talk about these questions is going to have, you know, vastly different implications. And so anyway, I try to do a mix of both, right? In some contexts, I'll be saying, look, these are experimental treatments on minors. They're being used off-label. We don't have good data, et cetera, et cetera. But all of those arguments ultimately, to my mind, should be at the service of, and what's the truth about the human person, the human body, our sexual identity, and what the purpose of being male and female is. And the example you offered a little while ago about the COVID restrictions and trying to justify criticism of, of the burdens on religious worship by, by reference to comparable non-religious activities, that's something I've been thinking about quite a lot for a while myself. If you're listening, Jonathan Silver at Mosaic, I, I promise you, I'm going to write this essay eventually. <laughs> it has been fascinating to watch that play out as a those cases, and now the cases that reach the Supreme Court, play out as an example of one of the tensions between religious life and, and modern administrative government, at least, is that today, the work of administration is largely framed in technocratic terms. With technocratic language, right? It's the the administrative state is the is is by and large, ever more the the cost benefit state. It's one of justifications, rationalizations, explanations that are grounded in the language of expertise and certain other values. But there really isn't a vocabulary for for the values of religion. And so back to the point, you know, watching people try to challenge. The some of the burdens that California and other states were placing on religious, or Nevada, for example, were placing on religious gatherings as opposed to business, businesses, casinos, and that kind of thing, was that they kept comparing them in terms of, well, at church, people talk a lot, they sing a lot, right? And so we should compare it to other places where people talk and sing. And you realize it's really sort of a desiccated of the value of religious service. No doubt there was sort of a vocabulary for the costs in terms of health risks. But there wasn't sort of comparable value. Let me put it this way. All the comparisons were on costs and risks. There weren't comparisons in terms of the value to human life, human dignity. And obviously, it's going to vary from person to person. But, but the people making those decisions, they just seemed not to be equipped for that kind of conversation. I mean, maybe that's good. I suppose in a constitutional government of religious liberty and no established churches, it's a good thing that, that, the, that the government isn't sitting in judgment of the, the value of religious service and trying to say, well, this is worth so much to people, this is not. But on the other hand, modern administration just seems utterly ill-equipped for incorporating those sorts of values into their overall calculus. 
it's hard for me to explain, which again, John, I'm sorry, I promise I'm working on the paper, but it's, I thought that this is the Supreme Court's decisions in the, in the COVID cases really exemplified that problem. And I think it's a problem we're going to be facing more and more as society's view of religion changes. Justice Scalia also often wrote about the fact that, you know, the American people were largely religious or had at least a, an understanding of religion that allowed them to sort of give it some weight in, in communal decisions. But we seem to have changed a lot, even in just the last 30 or 40 years. And, and the more that we become a non-religious or a-religious people, it's going to have real implications for, for our constitutional language and our constitutional institutions. I'm sorry. Unlike you moderating your panel and not giving your views, I just, this moderator just gave too many of his well, views. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And what you just described could very well be part of the transition from the healthy secularity to the unhealthy secularism that, you know, Benedict and Francis have drawn attention to. And it also, I mean, I, I think it highlights some of the critique that someone like Patrick Deneen makes in saying, what you just pointed out, the Scalia point that, look, our institutions, our form of government only works for religious people. Deneen's response is, and our religious institutions may actually have within them certain propensities, certain kind of directive inclinations that undermine the very kind of like social and moral capital that's required for the institutions to work well, that they're not self-replenishing. And then the question becomes, what do you do then? You said a moment ago, our religious institutions might undermine that capital. Did you mean religious institutions or, or, or Political. our government All institutions? All right, yes, that, 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 that was... That, that was a maybe some religious institutions do too. Who knows? But but you meant you meant our political institutions. Political, yeah. I mean, so so I mean, the argument here is that if if Scalia was saying, you know, the, the the form of government that we have only works if there's a religious nature to the citizenry, right? And that's not just a Scalia point, right? I mean, you can see various founders who have said similar things. Deneen's point is that and those very political institutions might over time have a natural inclination, a natural propensity to undermine the religious nature of the citizenry. And so the only way the government, this form of government works is if you have a moral religious culture, and yet this form of government might actually be undermining it, and it won't be self-replenishing. Then the question becomes, what do you do now? Right? And, and I think that's why you see so much discussion on, on the best days and you know fighting on the worst days amongst conservatives right now, because like it is a question that doesn't have an easy answer. And I think a lot of people don't know what the answer is. Very good at critique, very good at pointing out what the problem is. And it's unclear kind of what the proposal is as, as the alternative, what the pathway forward, like what do we do now is the much harder question to answer. One more point on this, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next, the next subject. But in the closing lines of your talk, and you're, you're talking about university life, and we'll return to that in a little bit, you offer this word of caution about how we arrive at the knowledge of truth. You say, quote, Certain intellectual and moral virtues must be embodied, charity, humility, honesty, and fidelity being foremost among them, end quote. I was struck by that because it's something I've grappled with a lot in recent years and in recent days about what to learn from religion, not just in terms of moral principles that I want to see vindicated in public policy, but also in the way in which I myself go about engaging those mm. debates, charity, humility, honesty, and fidelity. Those are all great virtues and ones that Christianity and other religions, you know, promote. I will say in my own experience, those are often hard virtues to exhibit in my own sort of engagement and, and sometimes in, in sort of zeal to promote certain policies based on, on my own preferred principles. 
that I think to be true. Sometimes I'm not very charitable or humble, or I try to be honest. But where I'm going with this is there's a danger, I think, that especially among Christians, Catholics who worry that that our political institution may be turning against us, that we may be setting ourselves up in the way we talk about these things, the way we think about them, the way we engage others, setting ourselves up as being seen as enemies of American institutions in, in I think, wrong and counterproductive ways. Reading those last lines, what it reminded me of actually was an essay that our friend and, and my boss, Yuval Levin, wrote about five years ago for First Things magazine. It was called The Perils of Religious Liberty. And it's a wonderful essay. And, and he, along the way, warned that there is a risk that religious communities in trying to preserve religious liberty may, in unfortunate ways, undermine it by setting themselves up as seeking exemption from public life, communal life altogether. What did you mean by those closing words about the intellectual and moral virtues that we need to embody as we as we pursue truth? All sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, it's a pregnant passage intentionally. And I'm with you. Like, I mean, this is, you know, frequently when when whenever I have to give a talk and there's like, you know, kind of a exhortatory passage, it's a physician heal thyself moment first and foremost, right? I mean, this is, you know, I'm speaking to myself there just as much to anyone else. I don't remember if this is in the published version of the remarks, but in the oral remarks, like what I actually, you know, said and what you can find on the YouTube video, you know, I mentioned that, you know, I don't think any of the eight speakers at the conference is right about everything. And, you know, I said, you know, maybe I'll lose a friend by having, having said that, but, and then I put it in my own voice that I know I'm not right about everything, but I don't yet know where I'm wrong, right? Because if I knew where I was wrong, I wouldn't hold the mistaken opinion anymore. But the only way in which I'm going to learn and discern where I'm wrong is by, you know, having good conversations with people. And those conversations can be with dead people who wrote books, you know, 2000 years ago. I mean, or, you know, their students who then, you know, took lecture notes. And, you know, that's how we get some of, you know, Plato and Aristotle's writings. It's, you know, from their students who are taking down lecture notes, more or less. But, you know, that might be. But it also is going to be having conversations with you, having conversations with Yuval, having conversations with. Deneen and with Chad. I mean, this is what I was trying to get at there was particularly for the students in the audience, like not to think of this as, as, you know, you're either on team liberal or you're on team post liberal or, you know, you're on team, you know, integralist or you're on team liberal, whatever. Think of this as how do I wrestle with competing ideas where chances are no one's entirely right about anything and no one's entirely wrong. And I'm trying to navigate this. And what are the virtues that are going to help us there? We need a certain amount of charity, love for each other, but also like a charity of interpretation. When you read someone, you know, don't put the worst interpretation on it possible. That's not going to be particularly helpful for you or for them. A certain amount of humility that, you know, <laughs> we don't know what we don't know and that we might be wrong and that we can learn from the other. I forget what was next. A certain amount of honesty, not cooking the books if you're a social scientist. But also like the honesty here of admitting the weaknesses of your argument. Like this argument gets us this far, doesn't get us all the way. Like, you know, I think that this is, you know, it's the best that I can, you know, I think intellectual honesty in that sense is important. And then, and then fidelity there, I mean, I think fidelity here is to the truth, right? And f- fidelity as, you know, as a Catholic is both, you know, natural truths that we can know through reason, but also, you know, truths that have been revealed to us. But by that fidelity, also meaning fidelity to truth over just defending whatever I said because I said it, 
you know, I don't want to look bad by admitting I was wrong. You know, there's a way in which, you know, some of these conversations can go bad because it's kind of like gladiator matches where you, know, you have two people warring each other and then we join teams and we cheer them on. So, I mean, th- that's what I'm getting at there. And, and hopefully it plays out better. I mean, I, the, the last thing I'll say there is I think social media can be really, really detrimental to these conversations mm-hmm. because, you know, we're, I don't know, half an hour into a discussion and I don't know how you would put this into a 140 character tweet, right? To, yeah. to, to, to capture any of the nuances, any of the considerations that you and I have been discussing. And so I think there is a tendency, both the shortness of social media with you know a tweet, but also like the instant gratification and then yeah. like the sometimes the mob mentality of tweets and retweets and quote tweets to embarrass someone and dunking on people, like all of that. This is where I like Neil Postman you know, his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he's building off of his teacher, Marshall McCollin, to say, look, the medium is the message. And so when we think about media and we think about different, you know, media that we use, including now social media, it may very well be that like that in and of itself is shaping how we think and how we engage. And, you know, the subtitle of, of Postman's book was, what was it? Discourse in an Age of Show Business. Something like that. I I forget the exact, but I mean, I, I taught that book, I think, two years ago at Christendom College. And, you know, when students were reading it for the first time, I think it was published in the 80s, they were like, wow, like this man was prophetic because what he's describing with TV, had he been alive for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, like this is like what it, I mean, had he been alive for Donald Trump's presidency, right? I mean, like that's politics in the age of show business. So, yeah, that's what I was getting at there. On that subject, Ryan, about our current discourse, how we conduct ourselves on social media and the way, the way this really does degrade and deform our, our discourse. One of the best things I've read recently on this is, is a little essay by a friend of mine, Daniel Stid, at the Hewlett Foundation. He has a blog called The Art of Association. It's at theartofassociation.org. And, and the post is called Bye Bye Birdie, Why I Stopped Tweeting and Started Blogging. And, and I really, really encourage people to give that a look. Now, as you just indicated, Ryan, so much of our discourse now does happen on social media, on these internet platforms. And that's become more and more complicated, more and more controversial. Justice Thomas recently had some reflections on the subject and a Supreme Court opinion we'll get to in a moment. But you've, you've found yourself in the middle of some of these storms. Obviously, you, re- you write on some pretty sensitive and, and controversial subjects previously you know, on same-sex marriage and, and on the new debates surrounding around gender and transgender issues. And your latest book on transgender issues was recently removed from Amazon. The book was called When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. You wrote an op-ed about getting removed from Amazon. Obviously, you have, literally have a stake in the debate now about this. But if maybe we could, you could abstract a little bit from your... Well, actually, no, I, I'd be, I, would, I would be very interested in hearing your, sort of your own personal yeah. perspective and then maybe abstracting a bit from there how you see more broadly these questions about the role of non-government institutions as really the mediators and, and now the judges of, of our discourse. Sure. Yeah. Great question. I mean, the second part of the question I want to get to, because you know, my PhD dissertation was titled Neither Liberal Nor Libertarian, a Natural Law Approach to Property Rights and Economic Justice. And so it's, it's a longstanding kind of research interest of mine of you know, what does a natural law theory approach to economics look like? Because a lot of, not so much popular, but a lot of like public writing that's taken place on natural law theory in the American context focused on killing 
you know, the beginning of life, the end of life, just war theory, war and peace, you know, so all types of killing there. And then sex, right? Marriage, abortion type stuff. So that's also a killing type thing. Now some of the transgender issues. So, so when I was doing my dissertation, I wanted to think about, you know, what is this approach to thinking about morality, law, and politics have to say about economics. And so I'll get there, you know, in a minute. But first, I mean, I was just shocked. And maybe I shouldn't have been shocked when, you know, it was on a Sunday afternoon, someone reached out to me to say, I can't find your book on Amazon anymore. And for a couple of reasons, one was that, you know, they had sold it for three years. And two was that, you know, this is not a bomb throwing book. I realized, you know, the title is off putting to some people. And, you know, I acknowledge that. I mean, the title is actually meant to convey a serious point that, you know, what was it? I guess it's now almost 40 years ago, the movie When Harry Met Sally, or maybe it's 30 some years ago. I think it was 1989. So 32 years ago. The movie was that, you know, men and women are so different from each other. They can't just be friends. Right. And now today, the, the idea is that, you know, male and female are kind of ambiguous, fluid concepts, right? And that gender exists along the spectrum and that you could be somewhere in between or both, neither. Like it's meant to show that within one generation, how we've gone to thinking about these issues from, you know, a rigid binary where men and women can't even be friends, there are always going to be sexual tensions to one in which, you know, a man could be trapped in a woman's body, right? But leave the title aside. Like the approach to the topic I take was meant to be like as rigorous academically with, you know, footnotes, citations, studies. You know, I had, you know, a whole host of people who helped me with this because you know, my PhD is in political philosophy. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a scientist, but I had lawyers, medical doctors, and scientists, you know, helping me understand the various studies, you know, reviewing drafts, giving me feedback. Cause I wanted to write the sort of book that you could give to a family member, a friend, a colleague who isn't particularly conservative, and the book would be accessible and approachable. So this wasn't meant to be like the red meat book of the month where hopefully I get canceled so then I can go on TV and radio and say, oh, I got canceled by my book, right? That wasn't the marketing strategy here. And so for like three years, we were happy for the book to be sold by Amazon. The canceling, I mean, I think part of this, we shouldn't be naive. The timing of this is highly suspicious to me. They sold the book gladly when Trump was in office, when Attorney General Barr was the AG, when Josh Hawley was in the majority, probably for fear that if they removed it then, there might have been immediate legal action coming from the Attorney General of the United States or you know, from a Senate committee that had subpoena power, right? And so that's one suspicious timing. And then the other is that you know, they removed the book the weekend before the House of Representatives was scheduled to vote on the Equality Act. And, you know, in the weeks leading up to that, I had been speaking out against it. The very day that they removed the book, I had an op-ed published in the New York Post explaining why the Equality Act is bad public policy. I don't think it was in response to the Post piece because I imagine this was in the works leading up and the Post piece posted, you know, I think like an hour or two after I discovered the book was gone. But I mean, I think the general circumstance was that we no longer have to be fearful of those who hold political and legal power. And this guy is, you know, one of the more prominent critics of a piece of legislation that we would like to see become law. And so this is an attempt to discredit me, right? It's, it's, it's to, you know, damage, you know, the professional reputation, right? And, and again, like, I'm not trying to be a bomb thrower. You know, we can debate, you know, how well I've succeeded at that. But like, the goal here was to, you know, be rigorous, thoughtful, and charitable in tone. And, 
you know, Amazon's decision here is to try to paint me as some like moral monster who's beyond the pale, right? This viewpoint is so extreme that while we sell Mon- Mein Kampf, we won't sell this book. So all that's just been really annoying, right? I mean, just <laughs> bottom line, like it was a, a headache I didn't need. This was still my first month of, you know, being president, at, you know, a new position and, you know, of a think tank, right? So I didn't need this as, you know, one more thing on my plate. Yeah. The second part of your question is how to think about this. I think all of our liberties have limits, right? I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a shorthand for saying none of our liberties are unlimited and absolute. We all have limits. The government regulates private property and private business all the time, right? It, it, we don't live in kind of an Ayn Rand world. We don't live in a Murray Rothbard world. Like that's not the American legal tradition. And we have all sorts of regulations. The four that I mentioned, I wrote something about this, you know, the next day, as it was Monday after, you know, I found out Sunday afternoon for first things, their Mm -hmm. website. And I was, you know, drawing from some of the stuff in the dissertation, but it strikes me that this is right at the intersection of antitrust and monopoly law, but it might not be a perfect fit. Common carrier and public utility law, but it might not be a perfect fit. Anti-discrimination law, and then, you know, what I said is kind of a, an analogy to limited public forum law, uh-huh. which is, you know, typically that's a governmental space. But in certain circumstances, they said that, you know, a company town, the mall at a company town could be construed as a limited public forum. I think if you look at those four kind of like legal categories and legal traditions of, of reasoning, it strikes me that some big tech companies are like right at the intersection. They kind of operate like monopolies. They kind of operate like public utilities or common carriers, they may be engaging in discriminatory action and therefore anti-discrimination will be applicable. And they kind of have a limited public forum in a certain sense of, you know, if you're a, a journalist and you're not on social media, can you really be effective at your job, right? If you're a public intellectual, right? I mean, I know some institutions require their s- scholars to be on Facebook and Twitter because that's how you have the rapid exchange of ideas. And, you know, longer form exchange of ideas published in national affairs, American affairs, journals like that. So anyway, I mean, that's how I've been thinking about this. I, I was encouraged to see Clarence Thomas's, you know, it was a concurring opinion on a case that was now moot because, you know, Trump and Biden had switched offices or more accurately, Biden had succeeded Trump. I don't think Trump, you know, switched offices with, with Biden there. And obviously, you know, Thomas had his own experience during Black History Month. You know, the documentary about him was, you know, no longer available. I don't think entirely. I think they had just removed it from the prime aspect, right? I, I didn't follow details closely enough. So, you know, it's unclear, you know, what was the bee in his bonnet that motivated this? <laughs> you know, was it his own experience? But I do think this is something particularly people on the right are going to have to wrestle with more. I think it's insufficient to say, just leave it to the market, leave it to private property and free exchange. But I also think it's too quick to just say that, you know, any given one of our existing legal paradigms is a perfect fit for this. And Thomas himself, in his concurring opinion, says, like, you know, we're going to have to think about how do we apply these forms of like legal rationality to a new challenge. And he, yeah. you know, he gives us two examples. He mentions public accommodation law and the public utility common carrier law. And so anyway, th- this is something that, you know, I'm going to be thinking more about, you know, I was fortunate. I don't know. If, do you know Jim Stoner? Jim is a professor at Louisiana State University, and he's an expert on the common law tradition. He's written two you know, really nice books about this. He was a visiting fellow at Princeton 
when I was there. And so I got to know him back then. That's when I first, you know, read his books and, you know, I've just gotten, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it. I bought them off of Amazon's because it's such a convenient way to buy used books. But I, you know, I, when I read them originally, they were library copies. I want to now have my own. I want to reread them because, you know, he kind of walks through both some of the major figures in the common law tradition and how it's different than the liberal tradition, for example. And then in his second book, he applies it to like contested American legal issues today. And so I think that's an untapped resource. I think part of the conservative future is thinking about what aspects of the American legal tradition have been forgotten or downplayed that, you know, weren't at the forefront of like people like Hayek and Friedman and others, the fusionist project, I think left out part of the original fusionist project of the American founding, that there are elements of the American political and legal tradition that have been left behind that probably need to be recovered. Now, this being an AEI podcast, I should point out that Professor Stoner gave the 2019 AEI Walter Burns Constitution oh, Day lecture on common law originalism. I, I haven't read that, so I need, to, I need to find that. Available to everybody on AEI's website. Well, <laughs> I know my, my dissertation director, Michael Zuckert, gave yeah. the Walter Burns lecture maybe five or six years ago. And I was in the audience for that one. It's a great lecture series. Yeah. yeah. The Thomas opinion, by the way, in Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, as Thomas points out, it's sort of an ironic case. The case begins with a lawsuit against President Trump because he had blocked people, certain people from following him on Twitter. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit says you can't do that because in this capacity, you're operating in a, in a public forum of sorts and you're the president. You can't block certain people from, from following you, you know, following your message and, and, re- and responding to you. Justice Thomas points out then that the irony of that then is, is the Second Circuit recognizes that these companies, these privately owned platforms, they are in that respect, he says, possibly a public forum. And with that comes not just limits or duties for the president, but also duties for those who are or maintaining those forms, or at the very least, we need to think hard about what obligations are on these companies when they operate as public forums. And I, that's something I've been grappling with too, I, I guess, Ryan, like you, is what sort of free speech obligations, if not constitutional and statutory, are we put on non-government platforms? But like you, I think so much of the debate is really, it's really exemplified the fact that we're all reaching for tools that were built for other projects that don't necessarily fit this one, right? Some early on, we saw people reaching for antitrust. We see people reaching now, you know, Richard Epstein and others, and and now Justice Thomas, perhaps talking about common carriers, all these things. But it sometimes feels like like that moment when you need a hammer, but there's a screwdriver, like in in, this is the closest thing in arm's reach. So you use your your screwdriver as a hammer. I mean, I'm not an expert in these things, but it doesn't seem to me that the common carrier or even public forum necessarily fits well what we're talking about here, because this is such a new and novel question about private power and public discourse. And so I'll be, seri- I'll be curious to see how it plays out. I have to admit, a couple of years ago, I wrote a little piece for The New Atlantis on basically had a title for it, and I needed to write an article for it. I called it Google.gov. And my argument was that we weren't far from a time when private companies, especially Google, would be sort of arbiters of truth in a quasi-governmental capacity. And I have to admit, when that essay came out, the New Atlantis' editor, Ari Shulman, tried to organize some discussions with the press. And I got the distinct impression after a few of these discussions that everybody thought I was speaking in Esperanto, because it just seemed so far-fetched, mm-hmm. so ludicrous that, that we would count on these private companies to be arbiters of truth. And 
things happen so quickly now. I think we've reached a point where many, many people think that it's it would be crazy not for these companies to be arbiters of truth, right? On the on the right, we see conservatives worrying that these companies have too much power and therefore they might need to be broken up. On the left, I hope I'm being charitable here. I think the version of the argument I see on the left is these companies have great power and by refusing to use it wisely, they might justify being broken up, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's fundamentally different views of both the nature of the power and what that entails. And whether it's, a, it's an abuse of power to not use that power to combat misinformation and, and that kind of thing. I'm not sure how we, how we get out of it, but the whole debate seems to me to suggest that we're kind of past the point of discourse and persuasion, right? And that what these really are is these are arguments among people who have given up the hope of a nation of persuasion and discourse. And it really is first and foremost, a nation of power over discourse. And the big question is, who will have the power to stop certain people from talking. Again, the premise of that discussion really worries me because it's, it seems a very hopeless one. I mean, look, if, if it's true that we're in a Habesian state of nature, right? Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, that's not a good... If it's a war of all against all where power is the only coin of the realm, that's a bad place to be in. But that said, it may very well be that you know a certain use of political power, right? The, the authority of law, legal authority, might be what's necessary to prevent that, right? I mean, that was obviously Hobbes's theory himself. But I like your point of saying, you know, we're, we're reaching for a hammer, but all we have is a screwdriver. You know, it might be that we have like a wrench, a socket yeah. wrench, a hammer, and then a Phillips head screwdriver. But we're, what we really need is a flathead screwdriver. And that just means someone has to invent it, right? I mean, I, I don't think that means you deny that you need a tool, right? We right. need a legal tool here. But it may very well be that you know none of our existing legal tools fits perfectly. And you, you, you can use the back of a screwdriver as if it's a hammer, right? You, you hold the small end and you use the handle as the, and it can work you know, well enough for a time. But you know, ideally, someone invents the hammer right? or, and then the mallet. And then you know, the, taking the analogy as far as I can here. So I think we don't want to, what we don't want to do is just say, well, it's not an issue that needs legal addressing and, and, and thought and and then the only question is going to be, what is that new tool that gets created? Right? What is the, the appropriate response? And that's where I think the natural law tradition and the common law tradition can provide some of those intellectual resources for thinking it through. Right? How, how do we apply certain philosophical principles to a new practical problem to develop the right legal and policy response? Now, what we were saying a little while ago about government and its posture towards religion and religious values, surely the same. The same dynamic is part of these debates about the social media platforms, right? Because if, if the social media platforms and other big tech platforms, their products and their services, you know, embody, you know, in some ways, the values of the people who are coding it or the people who are managing these websites, right? Larry Lessig, 25 years ago, wrote a book on, on code and code as law. And in many, many ways, the services that we now use online either in their coding or in their just their day-to-day management, they embody the values of those who created these tools. And if those services are being created by people for whom, again, the line I used earlier, this isn't like a vocabulary for religious values. And I, I don't want to paint everybody in Silicon Valley with that broad of a brush. Absolutely not. That would be totally wrong, actually. But the Silicon Valley is, is its own sort of subculture. And I, I do worry that so much of our day-to-day lives will be affected by, managed by, or even defined by 
the implicit values of, of that one particular community in worrisome ways. And that highlights to me like the importance of, you know, that there, there are some, you know, people like Brendan Ike who don't share those predominant values. For, for listeners who don't know, Brendan Ike was like the creator and founder of Firefox, right? Mozilla Firefox, yeah. and like parts of, I think, JavaScript. And he made a $1,000 campaign contribution to the traditional marriage side and the Proposition 8 campaign. And when it was discovered several years later, you know, he was forced to resign as CEO of like the company that he created. And so he's now created a new website. I think it's called Brave. Am I remembering mm-hmm. this correctly? It's a browser and a search engine that have no like tracking devices. So like what Signal is for instant messaging, I think Brave is trying to do that for web browsing and search engines. I think we're going to need more and more people like that to, you know, build almost like parallel institutions in in tech. But then also I just think like, you know, I I think of this especially as a as a relatively new father of, you know, how much of your life can you deliberately live that's not reliant on tech and, you know, to the greatest extent possible, you know, structure your life that way. You know, I, I would like for my kids to grow up as, you know, relatively tech free as possible. We're not going to become Amish, but like we do have goats and sheep and chickens and that's not for everyone, but like, you know, it's, it's a decision that my wife and I have made. And, and I found that it's been better for my own spiritual and mental health. The days when I'm just like, I never touch my smartphone and I'm like out you know, tending the fields from like the time I get up to the time I go to bed. Those are much better spiritual and mental health days than the days when I'm like fighting with friends on Twitter. So we have to navigate this, I think, both at like the personal level, at the commercial level, right? I mean, like I believe in economic competition. And so, you know, I, I hope that, you know, I think Nate Fisher is involved right now with some of the Claremont guys with, you know, building some alternative tech platforms. I hope those go well. And then also I think at the political and legal level, Right. So we can think of this as like we need to have good responses in our personal family lives, in our kind of like alternative business opportunities, but then also at the legal and policy level. This podcast has gone long. I hope our listeners are still with us. Um, here's the <laughs> last topic I want to get to, Ryan. And you're on the other place where there's a lot of debates about Even space. My mom speaking. won't be listening by now. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday again, Mrs. Mrs. Anderson. Um, <laughs> One other place where there's there's so much sort of controversy surrounding just the nature of discourse and competing values is is in our institutions of higher education. Ryan, you've had a you've had a career in and around these institutions, as you mentioned. You got your PhD at Notre Dame, your undergrad at Princeton, studying with Robert George of the James Madison program there, and so you've seen both higher education and the sort of constellation of smaller institutions around higher education. Now just. A few weeks ago, in one of our most recent episodes, I had a conversation with Nicole Neely of Speech First and Stuart Taylor of Princetonians for Free Speech. And with them, we've already sort of gone on at length about the state of, of higher education and public discourse. But I'd be curious for your own thoughts on where things stand now, both in the universities themselves and in these other institutions. Well, and also like the Witherspoon Institute around around these institutions of higher education. I'm decently pessimistic about the short term on this, unfortunately, just because I mean, take Robbie George as an example, like Robbie had great success at Princeton by, you know, being unfailingly civil, charitable, rigorous, while, you know, defending some unpopular truth. I mean, Robbie got tenure on a book that was, you know, defending morals legislation, a book titled Making Men Moral. It was in defense of paternalism, right? Moral paternalism in law. 
You know, so I always find it fascinating when people accuse Robbie of being a right liberal or, you know, a liberal Catholic. I'm like, the guy was, he's, you know, been criticizing, you know, Rawls and Dworkin, you know, his entire academic career and defending, you know, laws against pornography and obscenity and pro-life legislation, you know, marriage laws against the redefinition of marriage, et cetera, et cetera. And his colleagues were willing to embrace and accept that, respect that. I don't think Princeton ever hires another Robbie George. And I think that we're going to see people who have all the right credentials, you know, Ivy League undergrads, elite law schools, Supreme Court clerkships, like things like that will probably not be hired at corresponding levels of academic prestige and, you know, the elite nature of the academic institutions if they have a paper trail that's wrong on certain contentious issues. So that's not to say that, you know, conservatives will never be hired in the Ivy League, but I think a certain type of conservative that has a certain type of paper trail won't be. And I think that's particularly bad for a variety of reasons, right? And use that dynamic and, you know, my experience with Amazon. And I think two things happens here. The reasonable, charitable, rigorous voices will be discouraged and just won't write on those topics. And then other people will be radicalized and they'll say, well, why even try being, you know, reasonable and civil and rigorous? Because that's hard, right? I'll just throw bombs. Mm-hmm. And, and so I actually think like, unfortunately, like the, the administrators and like the tech censors, like their own strategy is going to backfire because what they're going to be doing is discouraging the very voices that they should be wanting to encourage. And then they're going to be radicalizing people so that, you know, if, if someone says, look, why should I try doing the Robbie George thing? It's doomed for failure. They're either going to say, I'm going to write about aesthetics instead. I'm not going to write about political philosophy. I'll write about aesthetics. And, you know, I might be hireable in a philosophy department that's interested in, you know, that. Or they're going to say, why go into academic philosophy when I can like launch bombs on Twitter and, you know, have a GoFundMe or a Patreon page. And I just think that would desiccate the type of public discourse that we need. I don't think that's a good long-term place for us to be. And the incentives aren't there, right? I mean, like the incentives to try to do, you know, I wish we had 100,000 Uvals, but we don't, right? Because like the stuff that Uval does, it's difficult work intellectually, it's slow, it's laborious. And none of our current culture's institutions, whether it's social media, higher education, incentivize that sort of deliberate, careful, civil product right now. And, you know, obviously, like you and Yuval are exceptions to that, right? But like, I mean, I, I do think that's the, that's the challenge moving forward. Yuval is, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm much of an example of that, but, but, but Yuval definitely, and, and others, others working in Washington. You know, I was talking with Nicole and Stuart about campuses. I pointed out that William F. Buckley's first book, God and Man at Yale, right? It was a criticism of, of academic freedom, of free speech. It was making the sort of paternalistic points that you were, that in some ways, you know, Robbie George is, is making that it's, Buckley was saying it was important for these institutions to shape the character and not just the minds, but also the character of people on campus. In many ways, what's happening on campus is just like, is maybe just a woke version of that, right? They agree completely with Buckley from 1955, that, that academic freedom is overrated. And what's most important now is that we shape the character of these people. And we disagree with the shaping that they want to do. 
but it is, it is very much as opposed to old arguments about relativism. This is a very unrelativistic approach. And I wonder, as conservatives and libertarians push back against this, and I was I, I used to serve on the board of Speech First, and and I left not because I disagree with it, but because it was somebody else's. You know, it was time for somebody else to serve on the board. I really adore the work that Speech First is is doing in their litigation. But I think it, it is always worth asking, right? Are we is the right position to be just totally in favor of free speech on campus, or is it to argue for another version of, of character shaping on campus? And I'm just curious how you see that. Both and. And when we talk about free speech and academic freedom, there's a line from George Will's book, I think it's like a 1987 book, Statecraft as Soulcraft, where he says, you know, the four most important words in politics are up to a point. And, you know, and that's similar to, to something I said earlier about all of our liberties having limits. I mean, I think that's true. So academic freedom, freedom of speech, up to a point, the shaping, the moral ecology up to a point. And the hard work is like actually deciphering and then titrating, like which point. And, and I think what you pointed out is that everyone at the end of the day is actually an Aristotelian, even if they speak like a Lockean. It's because like Aristotle just accurately described the human condition. And so I like, you know, the the early George Will book, Statecraft is Soulcraft, much better than, you know, his more recent book on the, was it the sensibility of a conservative, the conservative, something along those lines. Right? Yeah. yeah, because I mean, he's become much more libertarian in his old age. And I just think that even a libertarian state is still engaged in soulcraft, right? Yeah. Statecraft just is soulcraft and education just is soulcraft. There's no way of getting around it. And so the, the question in my mind is like, what type of soul craft and how do you protect the right liberties to the right extent in a way that's in keeping with, you know, the ultimate purpose of the institution? So, you know, I think a university is meant to help students discover the truth. You need a certain amount of academic freedom to do that. You know, last week at the University of Dallas, it's a Catholic university, and we needed to have the ability to have the free exchange of ideas and arguments with respect to some of the debates about liberalism in order for both the participants and the students to better arrive at what's the truth of the matter. But there are going to be limits on that, right? Like you don't need to have heretics, you know, included at a, at a Catholic university, right? And, and how we define who is a heretic at secular university is going to matter, right? I, I think right now, many of Robbie's colleagues view him as a heretic vis-a-vis the type of soul craft that they think Princeton should be about. And so as a result, I, I, I don't think it's sufficient for those of us on the right just to talk about procedures and principles in that sense. But I also don't think we should entirely abandon them, right? This is where people ask me, like, what do you think about the So Rob David French debate? I'm like, I'm with neither of them because I think like both of them are hitting on important points, but almost as if to the exclusion of other important points. Like we want to both protect important processes, procedures, principles, but see that they're important insofar as they help us achieve like the goal that we're looking at, right? Like these certain principles, even of, you know, something like neutrality is only at the service of the substantive thing that we're going after. And therefore, there are going to be limits on neutrality. There are going to be limits on freedom of speech, freedom of association, et cetera, et cetera. So, so anyway, that's where I think the hard work is. And, and this is why you can't even discuss it in the abstract. You actually need like concrete specifics of, for example, placing your child on puberty blocking drugs. Is that 
a rightful exercise of parental authority and parental rights? Or is that the equivalent of parental neglect or abuse, right? Because we have limits on parental authority. You as a father can't abandon your kids, neglect your kids, abuse your kids. Well, where do we think about something like purity of drugs? And simply to say parental rights, parental authority, as if that's a conversation stopper, right? That's not a conclusion. That's a starting point. And then we have to say, all right, well, how does that apply in this case where it is important to respect parental authority and parental rights, but they're not unlimited, right? Up to a point. And I just think that's going to be true of all of our discussions. And it's not a particularly like tweetable sentiment, right? That's not going to get a lot of likes and retweets. And that's why like our media is particularly ill-equipped for this sort of a discussion. Now, looking at those institutions, you return to that point at the end of your, your Dallas remarks. Just one last quote. You say, quote, I need a community of scholars to help me see when I've made intellectual mistakes. This is why the Catholic Church throughout its ages has taken university life so seriously and the intellectual give and take of arguments, reasons, and evidence so seriously. So, of course, universities play that role. These other institutions around universities like James Madison Program and the Witherspoon Institute, they play that role. Think tanks, hopefully we play that role as well. And and you now find yourself as the, the president of an institution, a community of scholars, including a lot of friends of mine and people I respect, like Pete Weiner and your predecessor, Ed Whalen. And so just in closing, I, w- I would love to hear your explanation of, the, of the, the, the place that EPPC plays in our public discourse today and, and what your vision of it is. The basic way to understand EPPC is that we are an explicitly Judeo-Christian institution. Like we are, you know, biblical orthodoxy is a, is a touchstone, a hallmark for our identity. And we're also kind of a pro-America institution. And we think those two things have something to say to each other. And that, you know, America at her best can be continually renewed and reformed in light of biblical wisdom. And so, you know, I like to say that, you know, we're a biblically orthodox, natural law, rationality, you know, American research institution, which means those are going to be our guardrails. You know, when I say all liberties have limits, you know, up to a point, those are going to be our limits, our the point at which we have to, you know, stop. Meaning that, you know, inside of those guardrails, I want to have scholars who are free to disagree with each other, free to think out loud with each other. I don't want any of our scholars embracing, you know, same-sex marriage or, you know, sex reassignment surgeries or et cetera, et cetera. But within those guardrails, those parameters, you know, how do we navigate something like the Equality Act? I'm personally against fairness for all. I don't think it's an appropriate alternative, an appropriate compromise, but I hope that, you know, some people at EPBC are thinking about what a better compromise would look like. So we're not going to speak with one voice the way that my old institution, Heritage, did. And, you know, there's a role for that model of a think tank. It's kind of like a shadow government where we have a party line and, you know, everyone's part of an administration and, you know, decisions are made and you support the executive, right? That's one model. The AEI model, the EPBC model is a little more capacious where, you know, you have scholars who are experts in their area. They're really knowledgeable and they're going to be, you know, arguing with both people outside of the institution and with each other. You know, AEI's guardrails are different than EBPC's. I don't know how you guys would articulate like your distinctive identity and mission, but, you know, as far as I know, you're not a Judeo-Christian natural law style think tank, right? American Enterprise Institute's. I think says something about 
you know, more where your center of gravity is. And the ethics and public policy center says a little bit more what our main focus is. But I think these are complementary places. Like Yuval used to be the vice president at EPPC up until a little over a year ago when he moved to AEI to be a VP there to run your, you know, constitutional and kind of like society research center. And, you know, I like to think of like Yuval's shop at AEI is kind of like an EPPC inside of, of AEI. But anyway, so that, that, that's what we're thinking through. This is going to mean like, how do we respond to, you know, the Pelosi, Schumer, Biden legislative and executive agenda? How do we think about 2024 and what a conservatism should look like in the future, right? I don't think it should be Reagan's conservatism. I don't think it should be Trump's conservatism, but what should it look like moving forward? How do we draw the best from both Reaganism and Trumpism into the platforms that various people will be running on? What does this mean for the church and other religious communities themselves? You know, George Weigel is one of our fellows. He gives advice to bishops. We have people working with school principals, particularly, you know, faith-based schools. Like, how do we navigate our institutional renewal? You know, and this a lot comes, you know, Yuval's book, A Time to Build, right? How do we think about our faith-based, our churches, synagogues, mosques, and how they can be renewed? And then lastly, like, how do we live this out in our daily lives? And so, like, one of the things I'm most excited about, we just brought Carrie Gress back to EPPC. She had been George Weigel's research assistant for a number of years, went to CUA, did her PhD in philosophy, was married. I think she now has four or five kids. And then we brought Carrie and her co-author, Noelle Maring. And actually, I think one of them has five kids and one of them has six, and I can't remember which is which, but they are co-authors of two books. One's titled The Theology of Home, the other Theology of Home 2. And it's all about how to think about you know, the theology of day-to-day life. There's a way in which EPPC scholars are talking to popes and presidents and prime ministers and you know, Capitol Hill staffers. And there's also like, how do we talk to moms and dads? How do we talk about people who want to live out virtues of hospitality in their daily lives, virtues of humility. And they're like, how do you raise kids in this culture? And so I think that's an important part of, you know, the work we'll be doing is, you know, we want a, a legal system, a political system, a cultural system, and a family system that, you know, promotes human flourishing. And that means we want to like, you know, defend marriage philosophically, stuff that I've done, promote marriage in public policy, and you know, in the near future, I think I'll have an announcement to make about a hire that'll be doing some of that work. And then also promote marriage and family in our day-to-day lives. So that's the vision. That's kind of what we're going to be about. Well, there's so many good, good people over at EPPC, a lot of friends of mine, and it's a great team and with great new leadership. But I also want to say one more time, just what a great job Ed Whalen did yes. as a steward of EPPC for, for so many years. And I'm so glad that he's He's there now as a, as a senior fellow and I believe the Scalia chair, right, at, at EPPC, where he'll continue his own writing. And so that's really great for him, great for EPPC, and, and congratulations again to you on, on, on becoming the new president. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for, for joining us today. Uh, this conversation has gone a little bit longer than 280 characters, but uh, I do appreciate you joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure actually to do long form discussions. Great. Well, for those who like long-form discussions, please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential. Unprecedential.